Please pray with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I invite you to be seated. Well, today we're going to begin a journey together, a journey we're taking this fall through the book of Philippians. So our lectionary, for the most part, this falls in Philippians. So we're going to just walk through the whole book between now and Advent. And we'll take two Sundays off. We have a couple of holy days in there. One is All Saints Sunday. So we'll celebrate all the saints that day. And then Christ the King Sunday, the very end of the Christian year before Advent starts, we'll We'll think of the kingship of Jesus. But other than that, we're going to be in this letter from St. Paul to the Philippians, to the church at Philippi. And one of the reasons, there's a couple reasons I want to do this. One is, it's it's what's here in the lectionary. Um, Two, it's a great book. I know it's all the word of God, so all of it's great. But this is an especially great book to walk through together. Um, Another reason is, I wanted us to get a chance to kind of live in a book of the Bible together and see how the best way to read a book of the Bible is to read it all at once. What I mean by that is the Bible is not, it's not a bunch of verses. You know, those are put in later. I don't know if you knew that about a thousand years ago, just for reference. But this is a letter. It was written to a group of people. It was read in one sitting. It's kind of one argument or one presentation that all hangs together. Someone is to kind of live with St. Paul's letter to the Philippians and let the Holy Spirit speak to us just like he spoke to that first church as we look at this letter as it unfolds. So that's what we're going to spend the next couple months doing, going through this great, great letter. And a couple things to say about it before we get into today's text. When Paul wrote this, he was in prison. So we'll come back to that next week in the first part of the letter where he mentions that. But he's writing from prison. And he's imprisoned for being an evangelist and a missionary and a church planner and moving the gospel through the Roman world. Because sometimes following Jesus gets you in trouble. And he got in trouble. But probably prison was more like house arrest for him. It wasn't probably in this setting, um, in a dungeon, in a cell. Probably he was restricted to a home and he was allowed to write. Probably had a, a secretary come and help him write this letter. He could interact with people. He writes about talking to the household of Caesar and the guards of Caesar. He's in Rome when he writes this letter. So he's in prison and he wants to help them stay faithful to the gospel. He wants to help them thrive as a congregation, thrive as a community of faith, and join him to join God so that the gospel would continue to progress. That's a key phrase in this letter, the progress of the gospel. And so much of this letter is about that and what that looks like. And what you'll know or what you'll see as we move through this is the heart of the progress of the gospel happens not so much by overt missionary work like St. Paul did, although that's part of it, but for the Philippians, the gospel progresses by them being church. The gospel progresses by them being church. Being church is not the platform for mission. It's the heart of mission. It's the heart of God's work in the world. 
Of course it filters out in the world. It did for St. Paul. He was moving around preaching the gospel, planting churches, and the Philippians were supporting him. So that's part of the story. Don't want to diminish that at all. But when he writes to the Philippians, he wants them to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, to conform to the gospel, be an expression of the gospel, and see it progress. So as we work through the letter, everything I just said will make more and more sense. There will be a lot more flesh put on that. Many scholars, when they read Philippians, think the heart of the letter is right in the middle of the letter. And the way it's written is it's not really meant to be read as like one continuous set of arguments, but more like this core idea, which is in today's reading, in this poem or hymn about Christ, and then a series of examples of the pattern outlined in this text. So we're going to start in the middle of the letter and then go back to the beginning next week. We're going to look at this famous poem Hymn. Maybe it's a hymn the church sang and Paul kind of downloaded in this letter. Maybe he wrote it himself from scratch. We don't really know. But it's written in a form that's clearly more poetic than the rest of the letter. And if I was going to use a phrase to capture what Paul sets forth in this section of verses 5 through 11 in chapter 2, it's this. He wants the Philippians to see and live by the Jesus pattern. He wants the Philippians to live by and see, or see and live by the Philippians pattern. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ. And then he unpacks that. Now, I want to say something about verse 5. It's really interesting. This is true of almost the whole New Testament. When, when, when St. Paul or St. Peter or St. John writes to a church, he's first writing to the corporate entity, not to the individuals in the church. Here's what I mean by that. It's, 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 it's both and, but, but this exhortation isn't first an exhortation to you, an exhortation to you, it's an exhortation to y'all. Or as they say in other parts of the country, all y'all. So in, in Greek, there's different tenses in the forms of the word you that we don't see in English. This is all uh, second person plural. Y'all have this mind among yourselves. And what he's saying, what he's getting at is, what I'm going to describe to you is, first of all, not your own personal morality. It's a quality of your common life I want you to have. Now, for that to happen commonly, what do we each have to do? We each have to embrace it. We each have to work at it. So it's both and. But I pursue Jesus, and I grow in Jesus so the community can express Jesus. It's not I join the community so it can help me find Jesus. That's not the order. It's I pursue Jesus for the good of the church. That's the logic of the New Testament. And it's kind of different than the logic of our culture and kind of where we tend to operate. So we're going to keep kind of pushing into that as we walk through Philippians. So he says, I want you to have this mind among yourselves. And what I call this mind is the Jesus pattern. It has three elements. Three elements. Jesus emptied himself. Jesus humbled himself, and Jesus was exalted. Jesus emptied himself, Jesus humbled himself, and Jesus was exalted. Notice the first two are things Jesus did, and the third one is something that was done to him. Did you pick up on the language? He emptied himself, he humbled himself, he's exalted. It's kind of like this kind of movement. It's like an upside-down bell curve. He starts here, he empties himself, he humbles himself, then the Father exalts him. 
So let's go back to the text. You might want to look on your hand and follow along because the language is really important here. In verse 6. Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. So here's what's going on here. Some theologians have have wrestled with, what does it mean for for God the Son, the eternal Son of God, to empty himself and wrestle with all that? But I don't think that's what Paul's dealing with here. He's talking more about a pattern that he followed. And the pattern's like this. Here is God the Son, existing in eternal glory. The very glory of God, it says in Hebrews 1, the express radiant glory of God. And yet he didn't let that define how he lived. He set that aside. He, in a sense, emptied himself of his own egotism, and he looked outward. Now, that's a tricky thing to say because God doesn't become or God doesn't change. He's always like that. In other words, he's trying to, in human terms, say something about the very character of the Son of God. But, but this is true about who he is in eternity, but then he chooses to do something. He becomes a man. And he describes it says, rather than Jesus grasping for his own glory, rather than Jesus grasping for his own ego, rather than Jesus grasping for his own self and what he wanted, he laid that aside and thought about us and put us before himself and became a man. I always love what C.S. Lewis says about this. He goes, if you want to just kind of just get a, maybe a bit of a feel, what it must have been like for Jesus to step out of his glory and become man, just imagine what it would be like for you to become a slug. I mean, think of the glory of being a human being and then just being a slug. Just a lump of flesh that kind of is on the ground. Kind of gross. You ever stepped on one? Ick. But he, for us, he emptied himself. His posture was not to lift himself up. His posture wasn't to glorify himself. His posture was to look outward for us. And he emptied himself and came into our story. So that's the first thing. Jesus emptied himself. Then step two, he humbled himself. So from the moment of his conception, he lived a life until his death and resurrection. And St. Paul characterizes that life as a life of humility, of humbling himself. Of humbling himself. Never put himself first. He always put God the Father first and the good of others second. God the Father first, and the good of others second. That's really the law of God, the great commandment, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbors, yourself. And Jesus embodied that, and he humbled himself. And so his whole life was characterized by this pattern. He emptied himself, then he humbled himself. At every point, he lived in humility, and lived for the good of others, and lived for the will of God. And that pattern came to its full fruition in Jerusalem. It came to its full fruition because it's there that Jesus gave his life on the cross. I actually talked about this last week, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. But it's just the idea that, that from the moment God the Son decided to become man, it was inevitable he'd go to Jerusalem because his life was about giving his life away. And the fullest expression of a human being giving the greatest thing they can give, the fullest thing they can give, the thing they can give no more of is themselves and their life. And that's what Jesus 
did. So, the Jesus pattern. Step one, he emptied himself. Step two, he humbled himself. And stop there for a minute. St. Paul invites us to, as he says in verse five, have this mind among yourselves. Another translation says, have this attitude in yourselves. In other words, this pattern, this Jesus pattern, it's our pattern. This Jesus pattern, this is the pattern I want you to have. I want you to embrace a mindset that says, choosing to empty yourself, choosing to humble yourself, that's the way of Christ, that's the way of God, and ultimately the way of life. And through the letter, he'll show different examples of this. Early on, I'll just give you a hint for next week, he's talking about being in prison, and the possibility that he might be executed for his faith. He's like, well, I've decided that my life is Jesus, so that might be good. I'm okay with that, because I already settled that my life is about Jesus, life or death. It's about Jesus. He was living the Jesus pattern, emptied himself, humbled himself. And there's a third thing. The father exalts Jesus, verse nine. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name, which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, notice something here. The Jesus pattern doesn't deny the glory of Jesus. It never says Jesus isn't the one who deserves all glory. It never says he's not the one who deserves all praise. But it says the way to glory is emptying and humbling, not exalting yourself. You empty yourself, you humble yourself, and God lifts you up. And so part of what I think this means for us and I hope I can explain this clearly, is all of us have a a hunger to be noticed, to be praised, to be celebrated, right? You can say yes, because it's true. We all do. It's built into us. So it's not sinful to desire it. It's that we have sinful ways of trying to achieve it. That's the problem. We think, well, if I get famous... I'll get glory. But Jesus says, that's not how you do it. Or if I push other people down, I'll lift myself up and I'll get glory. Jesus says, that's not the way you do it. But he, in the Gospels, over and over says, do you want real life? Do you want to be glorified? He says, do you want to be exalted? He invites us to want to be exalted. But we should want to be exalted by God. I kind of think of it like this. This is, this is, not a perfect analogy, but I might get at it. You know, when I was a kid, you know, I might go out on my bike and figure out how to pop a wheelie and ride a wheelie. I did that. Did you all do that? And uh, when I figured out how to do that, I went and got my dad. And what did I say? I said, Dad, watch this. And I want my dad to go, man, you're a good bike rider. I wasn't pushing anyone else down. I wasn't corrupt in my own, maybe I was, but I probably wasn't. I was just enjoying what I did. I thought it was so awesome, and I wanted the one I respected and loved to notice me. That's the Jesus pattern. Jesus emptied himself, humbled himself, knowing that he was going to trust the Father to notice him and trust the Father to exalt him and live his life for the praise of the Father, God the Father. 
Even 1 Corinthians 4, it talks about when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, we will all receive, you know what it says? Our praise from God. That, that's in the Bible. It says that. And so what St. Paul is saying, look, I want to invite you Philippians to embrace this Jesus pattern. And what it looks like is a way of life that's upside down from the way the world lives. The world thinks you assert yourself, you push yourself, you lift yourself up, then you'll be exalted. But I'm here to tell you that the way of Christ is different. You empty yourself, you humble yourself, you'll find real life, and ultimately, in God's sight, you'll be lifted up and share in God's glory. It may not happen in this life at all, but there's a promise that one day it'll happen in Christ. When Jesus is lifted up and every knee bows, those of us that have lived for him now, that bowing will be an exalting in his presence. That's what Paul's saying. And so he's inviting us, he's inviting the Philippians, inviting us to embrace this pattern, to have this mind in ourselves and live this pattern out. Let me just say a couple of things about what that looks like. Maybe just one. It shows up, it can show up in so many arenas, shown in so many spaces. But in the letter to the Philippians, the central place Paul wants this pattern to show up is among us. Sure, we, we live this pattern out at our workplace. We should. We should live this pattern out in our household. We should live this out in our neighborhood, other places. But he's wanting the Philippians to follow the Jesus pattern as they relate to one another and call them in to a life of emptying, humbling, and letting God lift them up. And what he's going to show in this letter is that as we do that toward one another, not only do we bless one another, not only do we create joy in the midst of our community, but actually the gospel of God progresses in the world. Because what happens... What happens is we tell this story about God, right? We said, here's the true God. This is a story. It's centered in Jesus, fulfilled in Jesus. But you know, there's a lot of stories out there. All by itself, it's just another story. But if over here, there's a group of people that said, we believe the story and we live by it, and then we show it, then it makes the story plausible. It makes the story believable. And so we embody the story, that's what Paul's saying, by embodying the Jesus pattern. Embodying the Jesus pattern. Well, I want to close with, in my lifetime, where I think I've seen the Jesus pattern most powerful. It's not so much out in the church, but more in society. And I think the Jesus pattern in my lifetime, where I've seen it show the greatest, is just things I can barely remember because I was so young when it happened. But, but in the 60s, during the civil rights movement and the part of the movement led by Dr. Martin Luther King, to me, is just one of the most powerful witnesses of the Jesus pattern. Because here's what happened in that movement. He led a movement to, to fight injustice and racism and to see laws change so that unjust laws become just laws. That was their goal. But he was committed to do it in a way that recognized that even the people that were the enemies of the movement were still made in the image of God, still loved by God. Jesus died for them, so therefore all those that were trying to change things were called to love them. The, the sheriffs who sent dogs on the protesters were to be loved. Why? Because they embraced the Jesus pattern. They could have, they could have you know, had every right. Who would blame them? 
for fighting. Who, who would blame them for hating? Would you blame them? I mean, for the, the kind of oppression and evil suffered. But instead they said, we're going to overcome evil with good. We're going to overcome hate with love. If you know the story, it didn't work perfectly because nothing gets perfected in this life. But things really changed. And part of what happened is on TV, by their sacrifice, the world saw the power of their love in the evil of racism on the news at night. And it just grabbed people's minds and hearts and people knew changes need to come. And when there would be a protest, say they're going to march in a city like in Birmingham, they would meet for days and they they pray together. And this was a Christian movement. You might have heard of a guy named Andrew Young. He was mayor of Atlanta. He was a, 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 a diplomat at the UN under President Carter. And he talks about how they wouldn't know exactly where they're supposed to go and they would pray that people would have dreams and say, the Lord wants us to go to this city. And then they'd go. It's a Christian movement led by the Spirit. And they'd meet and they pray and they talk about what are we going to do when people mistreat us? We're going to love our enemies. What are we going to do when people hate us? We're going to love our enemies. What are we going to do when people try to destroy us? We're going to love our enemies. Well, I could go on and on, but to me, that's such a powerful picture of the Jesus pattern. And if those women and men and children that day could could stand up and, and sacrifice themselves and embrace the Jesus pattern in the face of that, how much more can we among ourselves, where we're akin to each other and positively, you know, bent toward each other, how much more if we'd embrace that and learn to live out of that pattern, would that show Jesus to the world and show the love of God to the world and show the power of the gospel to the world? People don't naturally care for and love each other. It's not how the world works. But if we can do it and follow the Jesus pattern, the world can see Jesus. And that's the heart of the letter to the Philippians. Can we pray? Let's pray before we continue. Father, I want to ask that as we journey through this letter, that you'd work in our hearts, each one of us, that in each vignette we walk through, you'd help us see the Jesus pattern. And I pray that you'd help each of us to, to ask you to show us how We're called to live that now, today, places where we need to step into the Jesus pattern. And I pray that you make St. Patrick's Parish a a, a congregation that embodies and lives the Jesus pattern. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand.